With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Irma Olguin Jr. turned a lot of heads when she raised $27 million in Series A funding, an incredible amount of money and the largest ever for a Latina. Her company, Bitwise, trains people to work in tech, it develops software, and invests in real estate. The whole concept is inspired by parts of Irma's own incredible personal journey, and it offers a really powerful model for rebuilding and reimagining underdog cities. Irma, so much of who you are, what you've built, goes back to where you come from. Can you take me back to growing up in the Central Valley in the 90s? I think when folks picture California, they think of palm trees, they think of beaches, they think of Hollywood, they think of the Bay Area. What a lot of people don't conjure an image of when it comes to Central California is like giant, magnificent swaths of produce and ag land. They may not realize that the Central Valley inside of California is responsible for exporting between 20 and 30 percent of the world's food. Agriculture has been the driving industry here since these cities were born. I think that that really is more what people think of like heartland America. They think of cornfields and buckeyes and, and I'm talking about grapes and almonds and peaches and cows. You know, it's just a different image, I think, than, than what most people think of as California. So when you imagine yourself there in the 90s or you imagine yourself there here in, the, in Central California, two things to know. Number one, that creates a system where it's almost like modern day feudalism, where the folks who own and operate the land, really that's where wealth is concentrated. 
And then I think secondly is that there's another side of that coin, which is the labor that powers the land and gets that land to produce. And you take all that together in the 80s and 90s, you've got this situation where it's a very conservative place as compared to the rest of California. The counties inside of the San Joaquin Valley or inside of Central California are more red than you might expect, especially when you think of coastal cities being very, very blue and progressive. And so that's the environment that you're growing up in. My story is one of the latter, working the land, coming from a family of field laborers, literally parents and, and grandparents that migrated to California, following the work, following the food, the crops, literally planting themselves here, believing that since agriculture is the driving industry here, the work would be steady. So that's the place that you grow up. It's it's hot and dusty and very grapes of wrath in so many ways. Only my culture, my community is a lot more brown, I think, than the description of that particular book. Being a Latina and be, having grown up in households that spoke Spanish and ate beans and rice every day, like it's the other side of the same coin. You're really clear, though, that when you grow up in that context, you imagine that your future will be a replication of your family's past, that you'll do what they've done. Your story, though, takes a pivot in the most unlikely of ways, which is you hear an announcement for the PSAT and you, on a whim, decide to take the PSAT, and that basically changes the rest of your life. Yeah, it was one of those inflection points that you're 100% right. I didn't know what the PSAT was. I didn't know what those initials stood for. But, you know, you're 15 years old. You're in high school in this rural town, 25 miles away from the nearest metropolis, and surrounded by folks who grew up the same way that you did for the most part. And you hear this announcement over the loudspeaker, you're sitting in class, and it essentially says that if you want to take the PSAT, that you should report to the cafeteria. And I don't know, like you're 15 years old. The only thing you hear is if you want to get out of class for half a day, you can go to the cafeteria. So I did. And you're right. That was one of those moments in time that you look back on and you're like, wow, if I hadn't been such a rascal wanting to get out of class, I would never have gone to college. So it just wasn't in view for me. I think so many of our stories have those moments. And then like if you really sit to reflect on like why you're in the spot you're in right now. There's a moment like that somewhere that was not in the plan. That was nobody's advice for you. You just got away with it and it changed your life. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. 
You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Then the letters start rolling in from colleges. And you know, they say colleges for everyone. And as you say, you flip forward to the page where you read the fine print on cost and realize college is not for everyone. But there were institutions that realized that you were special. And one of them, the University of Toledo, offers you this huge scholarship. But then the one thing that stands between you and this college education is figuring out how to get to Ohio. Yeah. I remember receiving that letter and I had received other letters that were similar, offering a scholarship of some kind. And you compare what's in the letter to what's in the catalog from like a pricing perspective. And the gap is just huge. But here comes this one letter and I read it and I'm just like, I'm so thrown off by it that I think it's a joke. Like, I think it's actually spam that somebody has sent me something to like pull my chain. And I remember taking that to my parents and saying like, I don't know if this is real, but I'm going to long distance call the University of Toledo. I'm going to find out, call the registrar office. And they said, that, no, 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 it's, it's real. But in order to accept or claim the scholarship, you have to show up at orientation. I took that news and the letter to my parents. And I was like, I think this is for real. I've called, I've verified, and this is really exciting. And I can't really imagine what it must have been like to be them in that moment when you have to look back at your daughter and say, okay, yeah, but how are you going to get there? Like, how are you physically going to get from Carruthers, California to Toledo, Ohio, to even know where Ohio is on a map? I was like, I don't know, far and eastward. And so recruited my brother and sister and my parents and other family members. And we spent the summer in the back of a beat-up pickup truck, driving very slowly up and down these rural country roads, would hop off every few minutes to retrieve cans and bottles from the fields toss them into the back of the truck. And that pile just kept growing over the summer and was able to take that pile to a recycling depot, traded those cans and bottles in for cash. That cash was just enough to buy a Greyhound bus ticket. And that's how I got to orientation to eventually claim that scholarship. It's incredible. And then it takes yet another turn where you show up on campus and become a computer scientist accidentally, as one does. Yeah, as one just so just so happened <laughs> that I would end up in the fastest growing industry on the planet. Like imagine yourself there, right? You're you're 17 years old. You don't know anybody. You're across the country. You haven't heard any Spanish since you got off the bus. There are no taco trucks anywhere on any streets. <laughs> like you're just in this brand new place trying to do a thing that nobody you know has done that yet. One of the things that I reflect on a lot now is that when you're not college bound, there's no use in learning how that system works. And so you have to learn college as a system and you have to figure out how you're going to navigate that, which is not as obvious as one might think. And so I arrive at orientation off the bus, walk myself across town with my you know duffel bag on my back and I go to the table to register 
And I, I have that letter with me and I'm like, I'm here to claim this. And the woman is excited to see me. She was very kind. It was one of those moments again where like, I wish I had gotten her name because this is one of those people that, again, those inflection points. She asks me what my major is going to be so that she can send me to the correct place on campus for orientation. And I don't know what that means. I have to ask her what's a major. And she describes to me, she gives me actually back the same catalog that I've been flipping through now for a couple of months. And she was like, these are your major areas of study. You can choose one. This is how you'll spend most of your time is like what you're going to focus on for the next in number of years, four to six years. And I flipped through the catalog and don't know anything about what would be a good idea or a bad idea in terms of majors. There's no phone a friend for me on this. Like who's going to tell me which one I should choose? And so I do what any 17 year old would do in that moment. <laughs> and I chose the shiniest building in the catalog. It was made out of glass. It was brand new. And I, <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, like, wouldn't it be rad to take classes in a glass building when it's snowing outside? And like, also to understand, I come from central California. It doesn't snow here. Like it's 110 degrees in the summer. And to be in a glass building watching that fall. I mean, how romantic is that picture in your mind that you're in class and there's snow falling outside. It's all beautiful. That was what was in my head and, and is really like the, the actual reason I became a computer engineer is because I liked the building. One of the things that strikes me about your story is that a lot of the women I interview, myself for that matter, we go to college with the idea that we want to come back to our communities, want to invest in our communities, but always with a sense that first we need to go to some major metropolitan area that is already the seat of that industry so that we can learn their ways and gain those skills and then bring them back home. Was there any part of you that felt lured by San Francisco, by Seattle? For a minute, I did. For a minute, I entertained that, I guess, distant fantasy that the big city really was where it was at. And that's how where I needed to get. The dream is to go away. The dream is to leave where you're at and hit that big city and really like make it big. And I think I started to fall into that early on, like in the very first couple of days, because the sky is the limit and you're just, it's, everything is new. And so you're just like really drinking the Kool-Aid. But it was my first job actually in the technology industry. And so one of the wonderful things about my degree program was that you actually have to become an engineer. You have to do that three different times, get different engineering jobs before you can actually qualify for a degree. It's called a cooperative work experience at the time. And so in that first one, in that first cooperative work experience, I am earning a wage. And I have to like illustrate this point. You cannot miss this point. I was at the bottom of the totem pole. I could not have been lower on the totem pole. This is entry, entry, pre-apprentice, lower. An intern would have taken my place if I had not been in the right place at the right time. That low on the totem pole. And I'm already out earning everybody that I know at home. That entry-level wage was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And I very specifically remember this moment working late with my also entry-level colleagues where we order this pizza. One of my colleagues goes to like get it from the delivery guy at the door. And my colleague yells back at me across the room. He says, because I give him a 20. He says, Irma, how much do you want to leave for a tip? And I yell back to my colleague, tell him to keep the change. And this is another one of those moments in your life where like, I think the earth probably rumbled and like the whole thing just shifted a few degrees because I felt like ill inside. I was so thrown off by the thing I had just done. 
which was like in my life, I've never not counted how much change I was going to get back to the penny so that I knew whether or not that money, extra dollar, extra 50 cents, extra whatever, was going to buy another gallon of gas or another pack of tortillas or hot dogs or whatever. That sense of freedom was overwhelming. Like I actually felt sick because I just told somebody else to keep the change. And it was that moment super early in my career. And I'm using that in air quotes because it just begun. I knew I had to go home. Like I needed to bring this feeling back to other people so that they know what it's like. That was everything. That was a turning point for me. And I just, there was nowhere else to go for me but home. In another interview, you tossed out a question that I've thought a lot about personally. And that's the moment when you realize that your circumstances are going to be wildly different than the people you come from. What do you do? Who do you become? How did that show up for you? And how does it show up for you today? I have to tell you, it's some of the darkest moments of my life having to decide. Agency is a wonderful gift, but it is also extremely dark because when you're always in survival mode, you don't have to think through if you're a good person. You don't have to think through how much money is enough money. You don't have to think through how you're contributing to the world around you. You don't have to think through whether or not you're being helpful to other people. You're in survival mode and your job is to survive. When you create room in your life and you're not constantly fighting for your basic survival, now you have to ask yourself all of those questions. And when you come from the sort of place where nobody before you has answered them, then what do you do? Like, how do you find the answers for yourself? The very basic idea of how much money is enough money is something that I've wrestled with my whole life. Because my answer when I was 15 years old, my answer when I was 20 years old, my answer when I was 25 years old, all really, really different. And then you have to ask yourself, is it okay if your answer changes? Like the things that you're looking into your soul about, and you're trying to figure out who am I going to be when I have a choice, is not something that they prepare you for in middle school or high school. I don't care if you do know what the words PSAT stand for. Nobody prepares you for having to ask and then answer that question for yourself. Nobody does. I don't know any place where they sort of tip you off that this is coming. And so you're going to be hit by that train someday when you achieve a level of agency or success. But I feel like I have always had to face that down. And it really does inform all of the decisions that I make today, both because I'm afraid of letting the world down or myself down by not doing enough, but also because you have to ask yourself these questions about who deserves what in this life and in this world. And so I think that when you really look deeply into those things that can put you on the opposite side of a lot of people that you might know. And I have found that consistently in my existence is that I end up on different sides of the issue for things that feel more obvious to other people that I feel like I had to fight my way to a real answer for. And it happens in the macro and the micro, right? I mean, there's this question of not just what you owe the world, but what you owe mom and dad. It's intense. It's intense. I have reached a level in my career and with my company that sets me apart in a completely different way, right? So not only does nobody in my family understand what I do at all, but my level of success is also, I think, far apart. And that's a blessing and a curse as well to be sort of isolated in that way from just like a, from a very personal level. Obviously I think I get to enjoy the riches, right. Or enjoy the, the, the good parts, but it is isolating. And the way that I would make that decision is not the way necessarily that 
other folks would make a decision. In all of that morphing of self, when do you come out as queer? I came out as queer in college after like the most devastating breakup of my life. Also, keep in mind, or sort of remember that this is Central California where I grew up. Mexican-American family. This is not acceptable. Lots of hatred, vitriol. It just was awful. It was terrifying and awful. And I remember I can think back to many, many nights, like laying in bed awake at night, like sweating, cold sweat, thinking, what if they know? What if my family knows? Or what if they find out? It's an awful way to live. I have to be really honest with you. It's, it was not good for my mental health or emotional health or like any version of health. And getting into college, finding out a lot of things about myself that I didn't know. For example, I like tea more than coffee. I didn't know that. Like, <laughs> you know, you're learning who you are as a person. This was one of those things that like I finally came to terms with the fact that there's nothing wrong with you. But also you're never getting away from this. So all of that time that you were thinking you could just like put this in a box somewhere and continue to live your life, that's never going to happen. And you're always going to be miserable. You're always going to feel this way about other people if you don't figure out how to be yourself. And it wasn't until I had dated a woman for like a solid six years. It was a long relationship for a young person. And um, we broke up and I thought the world was ending as most young people in love do. Uh, You think that that's it for you and there's no reason for the world to continue. It was in the sort of depth of that when I was like, oh, like part of why I'm miserable is because I can't tell anybody that I'm miserable. Like I can't share that I'm sad with anybody. And that was what broke me out of my own barriers, my own shell. There was like, at the very least, I'm going to experience my sadness in a healthy way. And for me, I need to talk to somebody. I need to tell somebody that I just got came out of this six year long relationship. I'm devastated. And I think the world won't go on. I need to tell somebody that. And so that was how and why I ended up coming out. It's a little bit difficult to talk about on account of these people who had really awful, hateful things to say. I still love them as family. I still love them as friends haven't really ever given up on them. I'm a lot more free now to say like, I don't need that. I don't need to deal with that in my life. And you can take it or leave it essentially. But before you develop that confidence or that thick skin, you still want them to recognize you as a human being. And I didn't receive that for a long time early on. Since then, the world has changed quite a lot. Now, not only has my own confidence changed, but the world around me has changed as well. And so who I am and the way that I live my life is a lot more, it's dinner table conversation in many households now, even in a conservative area of town. That doesn't mean there isn't judgment. That doesn't mean there aren't people who are still sort of against me for these things. But I don't feel as like hated as I did back then. And so I can deal with your apathy and I can even deal with your mild level of disgust. It was your hatred that I had a hard time with. All at the time that you're figuring out where do I fit and where is home. That seems especially important for you, given that Bitwise brings you home. Tell me in your own words, what is it that Bitwise does? Very, very simply, Bitwise is trying to make everything that was serendipity in my life possible for other people 
but without having to wait for accidents to happen. We do three things. We teach people technology skills that you can use to make money. We root that in a sense of place, literally in downtowns and what we call underdog cities. And then we prove it. We model what it's like to build and ship world-class software using that underdog talent in these underdog places. If you peel that apart, that technology training is my accidental journey to college. The sense of place that we root this work in by buying blighted buildings and rehabbing them, improving them and leasing them back out to the technology industry. That's my glass building, right? That is that college of engineering that was like aspirational for me because I thought it would be fun and exciting to spend my time there. And then that proof is that first cooperative work experience that I was able to, for that very first time, experience what it's like to tell someone to keep the change. That's what we do with our apprenticeship programs. This is the first time a lot of these people are not going to trade putting gas in the tank for paying rent or their utility bill for groceries that month. When you take all of these three things, you can very specifically look at the the journey of my life and say, you do not have to wait for these accidents to happen if we want to see the world change. We can do them on, on purpose. And it looks like this. It looks like Bitwise Industries. Through all of this, you have learned a lot. And I appreciate that you share what you've learned. You say, if you're going to fundraise, get the rejection as soon as possible. Don't be afraid to ask the difficult questions early on in the conversation. What are those difficult questions? One of the big hurdles for me was talking about money first thing. I spent like a whole like eight months having meetings and I was like, hold on. So we just had like 16 meetings and you don't even write a check this size. What am I doing? So hard questions, first things up front, what stage of companies do you finance or do you write checks into? How big is your check size? Like that question makes me itchy even still thinking about it. I may not make it into your fund and I will have wasted our collective time. Now, when I say wasted, I want to be super clear. You still want those relationships. You don't want to burn a bridge. But you do need to get to this is a viable prospect for your round or this is not a viable prospect for your round and treat them accordingly. I think this is part of why you grabbed everyone's imagination, you know, raise $27 million first ever for a Latina because we're not in those rooms. And that is what you're doing. You're giving people who have not traditionally received an invitation into technology an invitation. You're saying, you can learn to code. You can be a part of the process. What does it look like to extend that invitation? And what changes, not just about that person's life, but about technology as an industry, if more people are invited in? It changes everything. When you see yourself represented somewhere, When you see a version of yourself achieving a success story, it no longer feels out of reach for you. You start to envision your life differently. Suddenly you might be college bound. Everything changes when there's representation. But I think what we don't talk that much about um, is that, that it will never, ever, ever happen by accident, right? Like that's the thing that I feel such, that's why I feel so compelled and wake up every day Uh, most days with a fire in my belly is because if we want the world to change, nobody's going to come do this for us, right? Like women, Latinas, the the LGBTQ community, if we want to be seen in these rooms, we're going to have to elbow our way in in some cases. And it's really important for folks like myself, yourself, and others that once we make it there, you're dragging somebody along with you. You have to extend that invitation. Nobody is going to save us. The market, is, it is often said, 
is extremely efficient, but markets are not extremely fair. And so what will happen is we will run headlong into our own future that doesn't look like us if we don't make decisions today to change that. And those decisions are things like inviting other people to the table on purpose, not just extending the invitation, but finding out why they're not accepting the invitation. What is making our own populations self-select out of things? Are they self-selecting out or is the market selecting them out? Like we should identify the difference between those two outcomes and then address the ones that we have power over. And one of the things that I think we have tremendous power over is that sort of subconscious self-selecting out. And so the rest of us who have achieved some level of success or met our version of agency, we need to be super mindful about what's causing people to self-select out of those situations if we want to see more of ourselves represented in these spaces. Irma, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things. Thank you for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentifu-Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our senior producer. Our lead producer is Cedric Wilson. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor and ad ops lead. We love hearing from you when you email us at hola at latinatolatina.com, when you slide into our DMs on Instagram, when you tweet at us at Latina to Latina. Remember to subscribe, follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, I know I ask this all the time, but do leave a review. It is one of the fastest, easiest ways to help us grow. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.